Well, my pastor growing up, Pastor Green, um, in the chapel with the sword of the spirit. All right, I knew a clue slash Bible joke was not going to work and that it was going to be lame. I will not be saying that one again. Uh, But my pastor growing up, Pastor Green, would always start his sermons exactly the same way. He would always begin by telling a person's story, and then he would connect that person's story to whatever the scripture was for the week. Essentially, he was taking someone's story and connecting it to the greater, grand narrative of the story of God. And he would always start the sermon the exact same way, with the same two words. He would start by saying his name. So, his name was Viktor Frankl. He was born in 1905 in Vienna, Austria, to a working-class Jewish family. He went on, after graduating college, to study medicine at the University of Vienna, specializing in neurology and and psychiatry, where he concentrated on the topics of depression and suicide. During the time of, of him being a medical student, he developed this program, and he offered free counseling to high school students. And after three years, during the fourth year of the program, not a single student in all of Vienna committed suicide. That was 1931. This caught the attention of of several in the medical community, both in Austria and in Germany. And 10 years after this, about 10 years after this, Viktor Frankl was shipped off to a ghetto in Germany, followed by Auschwitz. Ten year, um, while he was in the death camp, he lost his father, he lost his mother, he lost his brother and his wife. And he was in, the, in Auschwitz for several years. And as a psychotherapist, he couldn't help but notice something that he later wrote about in a book, a book that became very popular called Man's Search for Meaning. And in the book, he said, there are really two kinds of people, one kind that could handle the death camps. One kind that seemed indomitable. They could face suffering. They could face problems no matter what was thrown at them. According to him, there was a kind of greatness about them. They never lost their meaning in life. And then he said there were those who, even though many of them would eventually be killed and slaughtered by the Nazis, they died long before that that they lost their humanity, that they withered away, that they were like moss flying into a flame. Now, because of his interest in depression and in suicide and in psychology, he couldn't help but ask the question, why? Why, why there was such a difference? And so he began to look and observe his fellow prisoners and he realized what it was. And he ended up developing an entire therapy around what he experienced there in the death camp. He developed a therapy called logotherapy, which comes from the Greek word logic. And in this kind of therapy, the therapist and the patient examine what is your life's logic? What's your reason for getting up in the morning? What is your personal mission statement? He noticed that some people had a personal mission statement that was adequate to face anything. And there were others who had a personal mission statement that was not. But either way, everyone had one, whether it was implicit or explicit. And what he discovered was most people, most people's personal mission in life was to be comfortable, to be professionally uh, successful, to have a nice family, 
And now all those things are good, but when faced with the trials and the suffering and the evil that one encounters in a death camp, they're inadequate. And so, so there are these kind of people that, that their personal mission statement could not withstand what they were facing. But then there were others that seemed to be able to handle it. And he said, those, those people, they had a mission that was much higher than themselves, that they were highly spiritual and they could handle everything. So what about you? What is your personal mission statement? Could it withstand a death camp? Everybody in this room has a personal mission statement. So what, what would you say yours is? And not like if someone asked you, like, what would you really say yours is? One of my buddies, after um, the sermon last week, he called me and, and he, he, said, he said to me, that question you asked about what I'm fighting for, that really messed me up. He said, it's really been bugging me all week long. He said, I don't understand. I don't understand why it's so hard to kind of live out of what God had in mind when he thought us up. Why, why is it so hard to live out kind of the purpose that God gives us in Genesis 1? Well, it's because of Genesis 3. It's because of sin. Now, I know some of you, you've, you've kind of jumped into this story of God idea, and hopefully some of you are new. Maybe you're, you're kind of wondering about Christianity, and you've, you've been here the last couple of weeks, and you're thinking, I like this. This is, this is interesting, this idea that we are all a well-written, intentional story authored by the greatest writer of all time, and even before time and after time. Like, I like that. I like that there's this story that says that we can be a part of it and that what we do matters. But now then this sin enters into the story of God and sin seems kind of archaic. It's kind of like, well, haven't we left that behind? Isn't that for the street preachers and the, and the Calvinist? I mean, isn't it much more palatable to just talk about the brokenness of the world? Isn't it easier to say a phrase like missing the mark? So let me come in it a different way. Why, why are we so unhappy? Why are you so unhappy? It's actually a really difficult question to try to answer philosophically. Think about it. Think about animals. Animals seem to be happy. Horses seem happy and well-adjusted to be horses. Narwhals. I, I've never met a narwhal that isn't completely content with being a narwhal. A narwhal doesn't want to be anything else. So why is it that you and I, that we're constantly unhappy? that we never feel loved enough, that we never have enough success, that we're never achieving enough, that we never have enough joy in our life. Why is that? Well, the philosopher Pascal says that our unhappiness actually proves something. He says, the greatness of man is so evident that it is even proved by his wretchedness. For who is unhappy at not being a king except a deposed king. He's saying our happiness, our unhappiness, is the result of our conscious or, or rather subconscious awareness of having lost our glory. That we were all once kings and queens. Genesis 1 says, God said, let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness. Let us make man in our own image, male and female. And then let's let man rule. We were designed, we were made as kings and queens. So deep down inside, we know that Genesis 1 is true. 
But then sin happened and it continues to happen. And we find that we're living in the reality of Genesis 3. In the book, uh, in one of the books of the Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy comes across this magic book. And in this magic book, she reads uh, just an amazing story. I mean, it's, it's the most amazing story. It's a story that while she's reading it, she's experiencing joy that she didn't even know she was capable of. And she begins to weep. And, and she, she's just so drawn to the story because it's so beautiful. It's a great story. It's the greatest story. She, she can't believe that there's been a story this beautiful. But then she turns the page. And although she can remember how the story made her feel, although she can remember how it affected her, she can't remember the story. And so she goes to try to turn the page back, but because it's a magic book, she couldn't turn it back. And so she's left trying to remember the story that she couldn't remember. That's us. That's all of us. Sin has robbed us of remembering the story. So how does sin work? Well, I believe by us taking some time to look at the anatomy of sin, to look at how it's constructed, you and I, not only can we begin to turn the page back so that we can remember the story, but I also think we can begin to start living the story. So what does Genesis 3 tell us about sin? Well, it tells us that sin always begins with a lie. That behind every sin is a lie that's being believed. See, the power of sin is not fangs on your neck, but a falsehood in your heart. Every human being, since Adam and Eve, you and I are being overtaken by sin, by evil, to the degree that we participate, that we believe, and that we pass on the serpent's lies. So let's look at them. How, how did the lie start? What was the first lie? What was the lie that started all of this mess? Now, you'd think it'd be a huge, colossal lie, but it's not. It's actually very tiny. It's like the smallest lie. It's so small that, in fact, as you read it, you think, well, I don't even know that that's a lie. See, some of us might think, well, the lie is in verse 4 when, it, when the serpent says to Eve, you will not surely die. But that's not the first lie. The first lie happens in Genesis 3, verse 1. When the serpent says to her, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See, that's a lie. Now, God had told Adam and Eve that they could not eat of one tree. So you see how tiny it is? See how you might even think it's not even a lie. It's just a slight exaggeration. See, sin will always try to get its lies into us through an emotional through an emotional level. That, that falsehood will try to get into our heart through a slight exaggeration. Most people I know who have, who have walked away from Christianity, who grew up in the church, who grew up in a Christian family, most of my friends, that, that that's their experience, they haven't been argued out of Christianity. In fact, a lot of them have never really studied it, have never really examined the evidence. They haven't even read through the Bible two or three times. What happened? Well, they just started hearing people say, well, no educated person really believes this stuff anymore. See how it's just that exaggeration? Sin will always try to get in at the emotional level because it wants you to avoid thinking because thinking tends to lead to truth. So sin doesn't start out as an outright lie. It starts as an insinuation, as a hint, as a slight exaggeration. 
But then look at its effects. I mean, immediately this lie affects Eve. Look at what she does immediately after Satan speaks that first lie to her. He, he looks at her and he says, hey, God said not to eat of any tree. I mean, isn't that, isn't that crazy? Isn't he such an overbearing God? And Eve's response is, oh, no, 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 no. He's not, no. We can eat of, of some of the trees. It's just that one tree we can't eat of. And then she says, and we cannot touch it or we'll die. Now, God never said anything about touching the tree. So do you see what has already happened to Eve through the serpent's insinuation? She has already begun in her own mind to exaggerate the difficulty of God's word. She has already made God harsher and harder to please than he actually is. And as a result, her heart and in turn, all of our hearts, we begin to turn away from the idea of God because we've made him something that he's not. A lot of times the people who don't believe in God, you ask them why they don't believe in God and they don't believe in God for the same reason you wouldn't believe in God because that's not who he is. But it all starts with that slight exaggeration. So what was the intention of that first lie? It was to lead us to find our meaning and mission in inadequate things. In other words, first of all, sin leads us into false missions. That tiny lie, that exaggeration led Adam and Eve to believe the bigger lie that you can't trust God. And that's really at the root of all our problems. That's behind every sin in our life is that we don't believe that we can trust God. And don't you see how that's been passed into each of our hearts, that, it, that it's in there kind of growing and eating away at us like cancer? Our intellectual problems. When we have intellectual problems with the idea of God, what is our problem? Well, we say, well, I would believe in God if he could account for why the world is so broken, why there's evil and suffering in the world. But do you see, you see what's happening there? You're the judge and God's the defendant. You're on the bench and God is in the dock. See, that's the way our natural mind goes intellectually. We say, well, sure, I believe in God if he can tell me why the world is such a wreck. In other words, what we're saying is, I'm compassionate, I'm wise, I'm understanding. If God can prove to me that he's up to my level, then sure, I'll believe in him. Or our emotional problems. Why are some of us here so anxious? I mean, some of us who, who say we believe in God, why, why do we come in here with so much anxiety? Well, because at the root, at our hearts, we think we know better than God what we need. And we don't believe that God will come through for us. So do you see how that lie, how that lie has worked its way into our thinking? Believing that lie means that we now sit in judgment on the morality and the goodness of God. That's what happens every time we sin. We place ourselves judging God's goodness and his morality. When the serpent said, God knows in verse five, what he's saying is God knows that the thing he forbids for you is good. See, God knows that, that, that by, by eating this fruit, you will reach your, your more full potential that you will get out from underneath God's control. God knows, and, and so you can't trust that God is out for your best. You can't trust him. 
And that's what's been passed on to every one of our hearts. No matter who you are in this room, whether you're a Christian or you're skeptical about Christianity or whether you don't even know where you stand, that, that lie has been so deeply embedded in your heart. So what does that lead to? Well, as soon as we believe that, and we all do, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, at some level we all believe that God is not trustworthy. It means we all have to find a new mission in life. We can't make God the focal point of our meaning since we can't make God the thing we live for ultimately because we don't trust him. We don't trust God to meet our needs. And immediately we see Adam and Eve begin to look at the world through new eyes. As soon as they believe they can't trust God, they immediately have to find something else to live for. And that's what Frankel, in, in, his, in his work, in his, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about that. He talks about how everyone has to have some greater good that they're looking to. And so Eve, what does Eve do? She immediately turns to the tree. We read in verse 6, Now Eve, and now remember, uh, Eve is now believing this lie. Everything looks different to her, but she hasn't disobeyed yet. She hasn't sinned. But every sin begins with believing a lie. And so in verse six, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. That one verse perfectly describes the human condition. We look at everything out there, everything in creation, and we ask the question, will this give me what I need? Is this the good I'm looking for? Will, give, will this give me the, the wisdom that I crave? Will this give me the security? Will this give me the pleasure that I long for? Is this where I will find my highest good? And Eve turned to a tree. Eve looked at the tree and says, is this good? Is this the good I've been longing for? Now what Viktor Frankl would point out in his book is that we all have this highest good. And sometimes that changes throughout our lives. But we all have something which is the source of our security and our wisdom and our power. We all have something that we say, well, if I live for this, if, if I make this the focal point of the meaning of my life, then I can feel good about myself. That's my security. If I live for this, if I make this the focal point of my life, then I will have the wisdom I need to make good decisions. If, if I make this the focal point of my life, then I will have power to control my circumstances. And Frankel says we all have one. Everyone has a focal point in which we are putting the meaning of our life on. But since we've decided that it's not God, we have to find something else. But the problem is eventually everything else will prove inadequate. And this isn't just if you find yourself in a death camp. If you actually put anything in that category and put it up to just everyday life, to reality, you'll see that they all fall short. If, um, if the focal point of the meaning of your life is your spouse, if, if, if it's your spouse that gives you security and wisdom and power, it won't work. I, I'm, in a, I'm in a small connect group uh, with some guys and, and half of them are single. And it's so, um, it's so common 
for, for guys to think, well, you know, one day when I, just, when I get that wife, you know, when I get that girl, then, then all of a sudden my life will have more focus and meaning. Then I'll, then I'll have some direction. Then I'll stop struggling with loneliness and lust and ambivalence. But it's not true. In fact, just like if you even just take porn, like a lot of guys think, well, once I have a wife, then, then that she'll be so wonderful and my desire for her will be so strong and that will just go away. No, it doesn't. It doesn't work that way. If your spouse is your meaning in life, if your spouse is what gives you your purpose, and if all you're thinking about is how do I get a good wife or once I get a good wife, how do I hang everything on her? Do you see how vulnerable that makes you? Do you see how much that will crush your spouse? Your spouse cannot bear the weight of the meaning of your life or your children. If you make the, your children kind of the focal point of your meaning, uh, psychologists will tell you a lot of times abusive parents are not ones that hate their children. It's in fact ones that have made their children everything in which everything revolves around their children and having successful, well-behaved children. I tell you, that's crushing. Your children cannot bear the weight of the meaning of your life. And even if you don't become abusive, you're going to drive them away. Either you're going to make them emotionally dependent on you or they're going to get out from under you as soon as they can. If it's work, what happens if your job goes away? I know I, I hear um, from, from men and women who have retired how, how lonely that time can be. Like all, all of a sudden they've kind of lost a bit of their purpose. Or you see this kind of in, uh, you know, athletes, professional athletes. These men and women who have put all their time and energy into becoming you know, this incredible athlete. And, and, and that can only last for so long. And so what happens when they, when they can't be an athlete anymore, then all of a sudden they've lost their purpose in life. They've lost their meaning because they define themselves as a football player, a basketball player, or whatever. What if it's money? Now, money is different than work, even though if, if you're money-focused and work-focused, both of them can lead to being a workaholic. But with money, it's not about the product. It's not about having pride in the products. It's just pride in having money and the power that comes with money. And if money is your focal point, if that is your mission in life, then you're going to be tempted so often to kind of fudge on your taxes or on your tithe. You'll be tempted to, to act unethically in business. Some people's focus is on their enemy. One of my uh, favorite parts I ever played was in a play called Crimes of the Heart. And I played this young Mississippi lawyer named Barnett Lloyd. And it was a small part, but it was so much fun to play because Barnett Lloyd's whole purpose in life was to... to, uh, to uh, accomplish his personal vendetta against someone. And he would use that word all the time, personal vendetta. And I just, I liked saying it. It was fun to like say that. And out of like the 50 lines I had in the play, 25 of them had the word personal vendetta in them. And so his whole motivation, his whole reason for being was this personal vendetta. And there are some people who live like that. I mean, and the political season has started way too early for when the election is. And I hate it um, because what happens? And some of us fall into this case. You know, we, we, whether we're on the right or on the left, we make the enemy 
the reason that everything's wrong. Having someone to be against is what gives us our security and our wisdom and power. Addicts. Addicts are looking to pleasure as their ultimate focal point. Whatever they can have to kind of escape. That's what gives them their security. That's what gives them their power. But you see, all these things have something in common. Our spouse, our children, our work, our possessions, our money, pleasure, enemies. None of them can carry or bear the weight of the meaning of our life. All finite reference points die. Like we saw last week, we were made to get our worth from the infinite, and yet we keep trying to find it in the finite. And you know that's true. Whether you're a Christian or not, you know, you know you're a sinner. We're all sinners. You know we're broken. You know we've all missed the mark. And the story of God, to me, is the only one that gives a compelling answer to our struggle with meaning. Because if we can't believe that we can trust God, then we have to find meaning elsewhere and everything else proves inadequate. The only way is to do what Augustine said. St. Augustine said, God, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. What he's saying there is he's saying only God can be the focal point of meaning for us because we were built on that scale. Your soul is so great. Your soul is so great that the only thing that will satisfy your soul is God. Don't you see what a compliment it is to say that you're a wreck until you found God? It means that you were built for something that huge. You were built for the infinite. So, how is the lie obliterated? Now, if we were to put ourselves in God's shoes, which is what, I mean, that was the first sin, Adam and Eve put themselves in God's shoes. But if we were to put ourselves in God's shoes, how would we respond if we disobeyed, if, if someone disobeyed us? Or maybe even, we can even just think about, all right, based on my view of God, on, on what I've believed about God, how would I expect God to respond? Well, God says, Adam, where are you? He comes after Adam and Eve in their disobedience, not in anger, not in retribution, but with a question. What do questions do? Why do you ask someone a question? You ask someone a question because you want a relationship with them. You ask them a question so that they can begin to trust you. In a sense, God comes after Adam and Eve and he says, hey, trust me again. As soon as Adam and Eve believed they couldn't obey God, all kinds of terrible things happened. And and you see that. You You read that in the passage. There's this emotional breakdown. There's this social breakdown. All of a sudden, Adam and Eve are afraid to be seen by one another. They make coverings um, so that they won't be known to each other. They immediately go and they hide from God. They hide from God whose voice they had just heard say to them, you are very good. And now they're terrified of him. But God comes after them. And by doing that, God obliterates the lie. And when you and I, when we see that, when we see that, that God who was justified to to smite Adam and Eve for their disobedience, that that guy would come after them with a question that invites relationship, that says, trust me again. When we see that, and when we see him do that for us, most poignantly in his son, Jesus, the lie is exposed. 
The lie that you cannot trust God is exposed. And a lie exposed loses its power. So do you know that? Do you know that God's come after you? He's come after you in Jesus. Then you know it's a lie. You can begin to hate the lie. And not only that, it can become your mission to obliterate the lie for others. See, that's our mission. Our mission is to tell everyone to the degree that you can come back and trust God, to the degree that you can submit to your design, to the degree that you place yourself under the authority of God's word, you can be healed of all these things. All those lies can be completely crushed. You see, we become people with a new mission that we don't just do social work. We don't just feed the poor. We don't just do counseling. We actually obliterate the lie that is the reason that any of those things need to exist. All the brokenness, all the suffering, all the evil in the world started by someone believing the lie. We confront the lie behind every other sin, which is God doesn't love me. There's a poem by George Herbert that goes like this. And Jesus, is, he's up on the cross and he's looking down at everyone and he says this. Oh, all ye who pass by, behold and see. Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all, but only me. Do you hear the irony of ironies in this? The glory of glories, the tree of life because of Adam's sin and disobedience became a tree of death. But because of Christ, the cross, the tree of death becomes a tree of life for us because of his righteousness. Oh, all ye who pass by, behold and see. Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all, but only me. See the lie? The lie exposed loses its power. Is that the way a God who can't be trusted would act? No. Trust him. Trust him. Taking that step, that step changes everything. It changes the way you engage in the story. It changes the way you interact with the world around you. And it changes the way you interact with him. If we get this, we become a people whose mission is not our spouse or our friends. It's not approval or pleasure. It's not work or money. It's not even making the world a better place. But at the same time, it's all those things. Because God's word tells us in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all things will be added to you. Do you see that? Do you see when you and I, when we, when we make Jesus, when we make God the, the focal point, the reference point of our meaning in life, when we begin to fight against the light, everything else will be added. So that means whatever you face, you have a meaning and a mission that can stand the test. You have a meaning and mission that is adequate. You have a meaning and mission that will lead to a life of greatness no matter your circumstances. Viktor Frankl um, ended his book with these words. 
He says, we have come to know man as he really is. After all, man is the being who invented the gas chambers of Auschwitz. However, he is also that being who entered those gas chambers upright with the Shema Israel or the Lord's Prayer on his lips. Let's pray. Father God, I, I pray uh, that you have obliterated lies today. That your word has pierced through the darkness and the hardness of our heart and told us the truth. That you are trustworthy, that you are good, and that you absolutely love us. And Father, I pray if there's anyone who, who doesn't know that, who doesn't know of your inviting love, a love that comes after us with questions, uh, that you're, you by your spirit would make that known. Father, I thank you that you invited us into a story that gives us a meaning and a mission that is adequate to withstand whatever comes our way. May we as a church be people known for speaking out against the lies of the serpent. May our city be a different place because of what you do in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.